At Acuity Insurance, we believe the things you do for your business every day are nothing short of heroic. And you deserve someone equally heroic to protect them. Like the breaking ground on new construction things, the every box and barcode matters things, and the driving the family business forward things. We put our all into covering your business so you can focus on the things you love most. That's the power of heart. Acuity Insurance, wholeheartedly for you. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Welcome, everybody. Yes, thank you. Welcome. And, you know, today we're going to be talking about... Uh, one of those pandemics, epidemics that has existed before the COVID-19 pandemic with a new president in office and the balance of power in Congress shifted. Many advocates and activists are hoping that bold action will be taken to shrink the criminal legal system, to right-size that system, and to invest in communities to end the gun violence epidemic, uh, which both, dispro- both of which disproportionately impact young people, especially young black indigenous people of color. So uh, young people between the ages of 18 to 35 make up about 30% of the U.S. adult population, but represent 60% of adult arrests and more than 40% of adult prison admissions. And, uh, you know, I think not everybody realizes that a sentence doesn't end when somebody gets out of jail or prison or off of probation. The consequences of uh, criminal conviction actually have lifelong implications for the young people caught up in this system. And of course, the impacts here fall hardest on Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities. Um, And we know that making progress on these won't be easy, uh, especially as the White House and Congress are focused on getting the COVID pandemic under control. But again, there is renewed hope given the, the recent changes at the federal level and continued progress at the state level. So to discuss what it will take to solve these public health crises and address the harms that these systems have had on individuals and communities, we're joined by two expert guests, Hassan Bashir, an advocacy associate with our team at Generation Progress, who is focused on the criminal legal system and gun violence prevention. Hey, Hassan. Hey, how you doing, Brent? Thank you for having me. Good, absolutely. And Greg Jackson, the National Advocacy Director at the Community Justice Action Fund. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining us. Hey, Brent, thanks for having me as well. Excited to be here. Yeah, of course. And, and Greg is a, is a repeat guest. So some of you have heard him talk about this and know the depth of expertise he's bringing to the table today to this conversation. So excited to have Greg back on. So to, to, to start us off, Hassan, can you tell us a little bit about 
your role at Generation Progress and what you're currently focused on as it relates to, to the criminal legal system and gun violence? Absolutely. Yeah. So my role primarily at GP focuses on advancing um, Generation Progress's work that has begun before I even arrived um, in my role um, to continue on gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform, and particularly centering the perspective of directly impacted people. So that's really what my role um, exists as currently. Great. And I want to I want to jump in here real fast and say we are also you know partial to Hassan as uh, we also you know this is the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. So <laughs> yeah, we we definitely appreciate Hassan and the work that he's doing at GP. Got to keep uh, it in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And Greg, as I had mentioned, it's great to have you back on the show and would love it if you could remind folks about the mission of Community Justice Action Fund and, and, and how you approach the work that you do. Yeah, no problem. Um, so our mission is essentially to um, end the crisis of gun violence, specifically in black and brown communities, through strategies and solutions and policy that centers those who are most impacted. Um, and so when we say those impacted, we're talking about survivors, we're talking about family members, we're talking about neighbors, um, and we're also talking about people on both sides of the firearm. The solutions that we need to address gun violence must start, must start with the people. Um, and how do we serve, save, and make their lives a healthier, more positive one? Um, and so that's essentially our mission. We do that through advancing policy, shifting the narrative around how we talk about gun violence, um, and then also working to build community between folks who are um, activists or just passionate about addressing this crisis. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Greg. So I, you know, as we talk about how we're addressing the crisis, um, certainly a lot of this is decades. Um, if, well, if we're talking about root causes, we're talking about centuries in the making. If we're talking about uh, the gun violence epidemic, we're talking about decades in the making oftentimes. What are some of the key issues, especially sort of, you know, on the back in now, post-Trump administration, what are some of the key issues that we're up against uh, in the work of violence prevention uh, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest problem is that this is this is now um, beyond crisis mode, in my opinion. This is now the number one cause of death for Black men under 44, the number two cause of death for Latino men or Latinx men under 44, the number one cause of death for Black women under 19, the number one cause of death for Black youth. And so when you look at Black and Latinx communities, this is the number one life taker um, in our community. And it's not something that we can't fix. And what we also saw coming out of the Trump administration and the and this pandemic is specifically, we've seen major spikes in gun violence all over the country um, because mainly the root causes that fuel violence have intensified. You know, lack of housing, lack of economic stability, um, reinforced trauma, lack of safe spaces, all of those issues that fuel gun violence in our communities intensify during the pandemic. The other crazy thing that we we are experiencing is that we've also seen the use of violence to address violence intensify. Um, well, we've seen law enforcement crack down on communities that have been, quote unquote, perceived as violence, but bringing violence to those neighborhoods. Um, and that's where a lot of the instances that we've seen in, in our social media, on television, and has sparked so many rallies and um, activists and protests. A lot of that is, is due to the dysfunction of our government's approach to violence in our communities. We've been taking this law enforcement, 
meet violence with violence approach, when in reality, we need to get to the root causes and to proactively prevent someone from taking legal action. Yeah, I no, I appreciate that. And I think we're seeing, you know, a little bit of Yeah, so I, um, you know, one of the things, and I think you were you were you were touching on a little bit here, Greg, is um, so one violence sort of meeting violence. People, you know, from the uh, violence. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing I just wanted to highlight is that um, you know, sixty eight percent of uh, firearm related homicides in the black community are not connected to any other crime or any other felony. And so we're stepping into these situations um, thinking that this is a criminal situation and, and uh, approaching the law enforcement and the crime control approach and not prioritizing the public health needs and the mental health services and trauma resources needed to de-escalate these conflicts. Got it. Got it. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. And, and apologies for jumping in there. I think we had a little bit of technical difficulties, um, and so uh, apologies for for jumping in and out on you. But I think I think that point that you were making there was really about not having a strictly law enforcement or even a law enforcement centered approach to addressing violence, especially since we've seen how violence was being used to to sort of respond to violence. Um, and thinking about how we invest in communities and community centered approaches here uh, to address gun violence, and and I think that's. That's something that CJAF and, and you all have been leaders on nationally and, and grateful for the work that you've done to really center the importance of investing in communities uh, most impacted by gun violence who are also working to solve gun violence. And so, you know, Hassan, if I can just kick it to you, we've got about 60 seconds here. Um, mm-hmm. how, how, how are you all thinking about or, you know, how are you thinking about um approaches to reduce gun violence that aren't, you know, completely relying on, on the criminal criminal legal system or on police to do so. Absolutely. So one, one of the things we should definitely highlight is the the abundance of community resources. I think there is a, a lack of real investment, um, financial investment in community resources to like addressing um, gun violence. And there is a, a massive amount of people who care about gun violence within their communities, the issue is that they don't necessarily have the funding. And so I think our main priority with addressing gun violence um, is focusing on community intervention programs and not necessarily police or, or whatever it may be. That's that's really the focus is trying to invest in the communities that are directly impacted and that are directly um that are literally in the communities that are experiencing the, the gun violence yeah. we're talking about. Great. Thank you, Austin. When we come back with the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, we'll be talking more about gun violence and criminal legal system reform. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. 
Um, and come back to talk with uh, our great guests here uh, that we've got joining us remotely as we've <laughs> as we've had over the course of the past almost year now um, to discuss what it will take to solve uh, a public health crisis that, as we said before this, um, existed even before the pandemic and has only been exacerbated since. Um, we're talking today about uh, gun violence in this country, um, as well as the criminal legal system um, and what we can do to, to reform the criminal legal system so it do, does not disproportionately impact um, communities of color. Uh, Joining us today, we have um, Hassan Bashir um, from Generation Progress. Thanks for coming back with us, Hassan. And also Greg Jackson from the Community Justice Action Fund. Hey, Greg, thanks so much for both being here with us today. Thank thanks you for having us. us. Yeah. Um, Hassan, I'm going to kick this one over to you. I know um, you worked with us at Generation Progress um, on a tool for shrinking the criminal legal system. Um, and it's so that people can reach out to um, their governors and their state level officials and say, uh, we want you to reduce the harms um, that the criminal legal system causes to uh, people in our state. What exactly does that entail? You know, does that, when, when we say shrink the criminal legal system, I think that sounds a little bit technical, but it's like pretty some pretty straightforward solutions. Um, can you talk through what those solutions are? That's a great question, Charlotte. So the criminal legal system, or I guess the harms of the criminal legal system is incredibly vast. Um, but so I've, we've, at GP, we've, we've tried to create an action tool that tries to direct um, some sort of action that tries to mitigate some of those harms. Um, one of them is to decriminalize uh, or reclassify certain crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. Another one is to and cash bail. When we talk about cash bail or bail in general, it ultimately it ultimately creates this this distinction between people who have money to bail out of prison or jail um, and people who don't. And so there's a distinction between um, the poor and the not so poor ultimately. And so like one of the things we really want to highlight within that action tool is is the fact that cash bail or bail in general is 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 incredibly it's not a, it's 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 a, it's a terrible way to um, to distinguish whether or not someone is um, should be locked up or not ultimately. But even beyond that, um, the criminal criminal legal system is is incredibly vast, and we can. Definitely touch on that more often. Yeah, and when we're, when we're talking about the criminal legal system, right, we're talking about like policing and arrest to jail, as you were talking about, Hassan, with cash bail and, and who gets held pre-trial. People don't always realize jail is almost always for people who are still technically innocent awaiting trial to exactly. who goes through court cases to who gets, you know, probation or prison or parole. It's every aspect of that system. I think when we think about the criminal legal system for a lot of people they only think about police or they only think about prison and the reality is it's all these different things cobbled together to ensnare you know millions of people every year 
So that's a really good point. I, I, I don't think a lot of people realize that, I mean, it sounds like Hassan, what you're saying here is that there is a system that uh, there's a criminal legal system for rich people and there's a criminal legal system for poor, for poor people, right? I mean, even though it's all the same system, um, if you have money, it treats you very differently and you have very different opportunities than if you don't have money to begin with. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Um, I think the distinction between the rich and the poor um, in the criminal legal system is specifically about bail. Um, and, and even beyond bail, it's, there's a massive distinction between how I can, I can be represented within the justice system if I'm poor and if I'm rich. Um, I can have a number of, um, I guess the lack of a better term, of privileges if I have more money than someone who does not. And so there is a massive distinction between the privileged and not so privileged within the justice system. And so one of the things we're one of the things we're asking for in our action tool uh, GP is to to mitigate those privileges um, between the, the the poor and lacking. And then can it sounds like these are fixes that um, are being set up to ask your governor or your state legislators to apply. But are there also things that the federal government can be doing? Are these policy solutions that say like Congress could enact as well? Absolutely. So one of the things we can definitely apply at the federal level is the ending of mandatory minimums that um, there are mandatory minimums that exist at the federal level and also at the state level. We so if if for layman's term, mandatory minimums, basically it doesn't allow consideration of facts um, in a case, um, no matter what the facts are in that case. And so like if I am convicted, now I'm convicted, if I have a particular, if I'm, if, if I committed a quote unquote committed a particular crime, there is no distinction at all if I'm eventually, if I'm not um, convicted of crime. So there's not any sort of, uh, any distinction when it comes to a judge uh, when it comes to mandatory minimums, um, there is also decriminalizing certain crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. Uh, that's something that can be also be done at the federal level. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Hassan. And you know, I think there's so many tools available, whether at the state or federal level, to begin reining this in. So, uh, Greg, sort of shifting shifting priorities here a little bit. We know that there's overlap between the criminal legal system and gun violence, although they're separate, they're separate issues, but we know there's overlap when it comes to root causes and also in terms of how, you know, um, responding to gun violence can actually um, um, exacerbate issues in the criminal legal system. So, you know, we have just a, a little bit of time here and then we want to pick it right up with you on the back end of this break, but can you talk a bit about three main prior policy priorities that CJAF has? Um, and how the first two are about investing in, in proven gun violence prevention strategies. Yeah, definitely. I mean, priority number one is that we need investment in these solutions. There are already evidence-based policy solutions, programmatic solutions, and changes that can be made, um, but we just are not seeing them, and we're not seeing the programs and resources that are already being built out in cities and states all over the country, um, not getting the actual state, uh, federal, or city governmental support. So number one is to really demand that our elected leaders invest in our communities as much as they spend policing and being concerned about our communities through thoughts and prayers. 
Our second big priority is to make sure that we dismantle laws that fuel gun violence. Um, we're seeing that rampantly with stand your ground laws. Uh, these types of laws have been proven and statistically proven to increase the number of gun-related incidents um, across all communities, but especially in black and brown communities. And it also intensifies and has increased the number of violence against black communities. And we've seen that in numerous examples um, over the years. The third big priority for us um, is ensuring that we address gender-based violence and all the violence in its forms that impacts those who are most uh, vulnerable in these times. We know that gender-based violence is something that's not covered, not discussed enough, but we know the solutions exist and we haven't seen the policy to step up and address that beyond uh, the law enforcement approach. Great. We'll have more when we come right back. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. Yeah, I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Uh, so we've got with us some great guests here. Uh, we're rejoined by Hassan Bashir from Generation Progress. Hassan, thank you for coming back with us, as well as Greg Jackson from the Community Justice Action Fund. Greg, thank you again for rejoining us on uh, our GP Takeover here. Um, Greg, I wanted to come, come right back to you um, and pick up on what we were talking about just before uh, we went to commercial break. Um, your organization, CJAF, has three main policy priorities. Um, the first two of which are, uh, I believe, investing in proven gun violence prevention strategies and dismantling structures and institutions that fuel gun violence. So um, I was I was hoping you could uh, bring us back here and tell us what some of the strategies are that you're most interested in seeing um, federal investment made in considering those two policy priorities of your organization. Yeah, no problem. I mean... I want to just frame it, too. I mean, right now, the federal government puts $29.2 billion into the Department of Justice alone. And we think about resources that go directly to non-law enforcement, non-criminal approaches to addressing gun violence in our communities. Uh, the most we've ever seen, I believe, was $12 million from the federal budget, right? Uh, so we're not... not <laughs> A drip in the bucket is is almost laughable. Um, we're not getting any type of federal support to address this crisis. And when we look at the programs that were what I what I mentioned and what we're fighting for, programs like uh, survivor support um, programs. I'm a, I'm a survivor of gun violence. When I arrived at the hospital when I was shot, you know, before I even could meet my doctors, meet my nurse, meet my surgeon, I was met with three investigators from law enforcement. And then when I came out of surgery. I had a chaplain and I had a wheelchair, but there was no other resources or support for me to figure out how to navigate that trauma, how to live somewhere else. If the person who harmed me maybe lives in the same building or unfortunately may have lived in the same home. Um, so the first big thing is uh, resources for survivors, because um, we also know that 80 percent of people who commit a violent offense were once a survivor at some point in their life. The second big thing is violence intervention programs, organizations that proactively get into the community, build relationships, are already a part of these communities and can help uh, de-escalate situations and conflicts before they become lethal, before they can arrive. Again, 68% of uh, firearm-related homicides are not connected to another crime. A lot of times it is a conflict that brews and escalates until it becomes a, a, a force of lethal action. 
Um, the other third program that we fight really aggressive for is um, efforts that target and support um, those who are most at risk. Um, it is very, unfortunately, it is very easy to figure out um, statistically who is likely to lash out in a violent way um, and potentially take someone's life. You can look at the trauma they've been, they've experienced in their lifestyle, the resources they have, the opportunities they've had, and it's almost predictable, you know, who will be the next person to commit a violent crime. And right now, all we're doing is looking at those stats and we're creating law enforcement and police monitoring, but we're not looking at resources support to help them find a new pathway or develop a new lifestyle or really just turn their life in a positive direction. And there are programs that are doing that and doing that extremely successful. Programs like Advanced Peace that have seen in some cities upwards of 60% reduction in gun violence in, in less than five years just by focusing on those who are most at risk and most likely to either be a victim or commit a violent offense. Yes, and I'm and I'm glad you mentioned advanced peace, Gray, because it's such a it's such an interesting model, right? And it and, and it like you said, it's been proven to be successful first in in Richmond, California, um, where really working with those most likely to be to be at risk or most likely to engage in gun violence and providing opportunities and resources for there to be another path, right? In a in a very concentrated and deliberate way. And the numbers sort of speak for themselves here, first in Richmond, but also now nationally as advanced peace is scaled throughout the country. So, you know, I think there's there's good evidence that there's another way outside of law enforcement to not only have good results, but even better results, preventive results. Um, what is it, you know, what is it that you're looking for from either Congress on the appropriations front or from the Biden administration Biden-Harris administration on the policy front, whether at HHS or, or DOJ or one of the other agencies um, that you think can really help um, push the response to gun violence in this in this country in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that we're looking for on all fronts um, is just a commitment to invest in these solutions. Um, again, there's the three I've mentioned. Those types of programs are just a handful of what exists out there. Um, every major city has um, upwards of hundreds of organizations that are community-based that are doing amazing work, but really doing it out of the, the love in their heart um, and the love for their neighbors and not necessarily with the training, with the support, with the infrastructure or the investment um, from government. So that's the huge thing. The second big thing is, and this this applies, you know, when we look at the appropriations process, there's already dollars there that are meant to address community-related violence, but they're all being funneled through law enforcement and through criminal justice systems. And so one big ask of the Appropriations Committee is to ensure that those dollars get to the communities directly that are most impacted, to get to community-based organizations that are already integrated in these populations versus putting it into an entity that is known to police and monitor um, and incarcerate, unfortunately. Um, when we think about the Biden-Harris administration, um, thankfully, uh, our President Biden, Joe Biden, already committed to $900 million to go towards community-based violence intervention and prevention programs. Um, and we applauded that commitment during his campaign. Uh, but now that he's president, we need that campaign promise to become a reality. Um, and we need that now. That's not something we should wait two, three years for, discuss, deliberate. Every day, over 100 people are shot. Um, and we're looking at a crisis where every second loss is literally lives lost when we're not investing in these solutions. Um, we look at Congress. Um, Congress, we are really asking Congress to help us build infrastructure. Um, we need a national office of violence prevention or neighborhood safety that is looking at the comprehensive approach to address violence in our country. We need resources in the Department of Health, 
and Human Services, and as well as Department of Justice. We need, if we're really thinking of this as the public health crisis that it is, we need infrastructure to help develop strategies to hold other agencies accountable, um, but also to look at what can we do around our healthcare system, what can we do around our housing system, what can we do around our economic system, to all work together to create a broader crisis system to respond to this gun violence crisis beyond just law enforcement and beyond just investing dollars um, in the community. Yeah, I think I think that's huge. And thank you, Greg. I think it's, as you said, it's it's got to be a much more comprehensive approach um, and come from a bunch of different angles instead of, um, you know, it's, uh, you need you need a much more fine-tuned instrument um, than has been used um, by the federal government um, in in the past here. Um, Hassan, I I was wondering if we could ask um, as we're ta- as we're talking to Greg about some of the priorities he'd like to see here um, that the, he'd like to see the Biden Harris administration and Congress address here um, in uh, in this new administration. Um, are there actions that you would like to see from um, the Biden-Harris administration on cr- criminal legal system reforms? Absolutely. So one of the things I should, at, at the very least, highlight is one major, um, really major executive action that the Biden administration has, has already done, which was ending contracts with federal prisons. Um, it's a, It's something that was retracted or I guess like reversed by the Trump administration and was not able to be done by the by the Obama administration until like the last six months of his second administration. So I, I really just want to highlight that, the fact that the Biden administration was able to do that within the first week of him, you know, being president of the United States. Um, so I think we should definitely continue highlighting the, the negative aspects of Private prisons, um, even though that's that is a it is a, it is a issue, but it's also not. It's a step. It's a step in the right direction. Um, but we also want to absolutely increase um, police reform. We should 110% focus on police reform, specifically um, highlighting the issues of 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 including um, including community community based action versus what we call what we call policing. I think one of the major aspects of one of the major reforms we should be focusing on and the the Biden administration can focus on is changing the sentiment of what policing can be and what we realize what policing can be. I think we should definitely focus on um, reimagining um, uh, aspects of community supervision uh, or community, Community safety, I'll say. I think yeah. that I think that makes sense. Um, I think what you're like, you know, it's uh, who feels safe, um, who is made to feel safe by um, police in neighborhoods, and who does not. Um, and I think that thinking about um, who police are there for, um, and other ways that people can um, be made to feel safe and be made safe, um, and live in happy and healthy um, and positive communities, um, is a great a great thing that we need to explore and answer. Uh, you've been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, we will be right back with y'all after this commercial break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show.
Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Brent J. Cohen, your co-host. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And we are talking today with Hassan Bashir from Generation Progress and Gregory Jackson from Community Justice Action Fund about both the gun violence epidemic and the need to shrink the criminal legal system and enact reforms in the criminal legal system. And so, uh, Greg, as we sort of uh, kick off our final segment of the show here, I want to I want to talk just a little bit about the final pillar of CJF's uh, policy agenda around ending gender-based violence, um, and just if you can talk a bit more about how that fits into the larger agenda and agenda, and why the organization is is prioritizing ending this type of violence. Yeah, um, sadly, this is a crisis that is growing. Um, and becoming worse and worse. And it's something that unfortunately lives in the shadows. Um, when we think about policy solutions, um, specifically when we look at um, firearm related death um, from domestic violence, we always say, well, that was a tragedy. We need to get the, you know, the gun out of that person's hand. We think about the hardware, but we overlook that typically death by firearm in those situations is the last part of this cycle of domestic violence that led to that point. And so we have to think more than we have to think about more than just the criminal justice approach, similar to gun violence as a whole, and more than just the hardware that's in someone's hand when lethal force is taken. And so our efforts around gender-based violence is to also uplift the public health solutions and resources that are needed to address violence, especially um, when it's against women, when it's against the trans community, when it's against um, even our youth um, in our own communities. We don't have the same level of trust in black and brown communities for law enforcement for very obvious reasons, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel safer in our homes or safer around our loved ones um, or safer with our partners. Um, and so this is something that we want to bring a light, shine a huge light on, but also put pressure on our policymakers to think about this issue beyond the traditional law enforcement approach, understanding that law enforcement is not serving every community the way that it was designed. And while reform is, you know, happening and in process and a priority, in the meantime, we're we're watching our women uh, and our and our everyone of different gender makeups um, become victims at alarming rates, and it's getting worse and worse. Thanks, Greg, and just just to say, really appreciate your focus and your organization's focus on on um, gender-based violence, and you you mentioned making sure that we're also protecting uh, the trans community as well. Um, you know, and, and hearing you talk about how we can get to safety and safety in our own homes, safety in our own communities. You know, I was having a conversation just yesterday with some advocates up in New York, and we were almost talking about the supply, the demand, and then what's already there, right? So the supply in terms of like, how do you stop the influx of guns into communities um, and how that sort of the the quote unquote target for that is some is, you know, is different than who people imagine are running guns. And then it's the, it's, it's reducing demand on the on the other side by addressing some of the longstanding inequities, systemic racism that exists, addressing things like education and housing, um, food stability, for example, some of the some of the root issues that we know give rise to violence in general. And then third is knowing that there are guns out there already, and unfortunately knowing that there are folks who have been um, who are, who for a variety of reasons are more prone to be engaged in, in violence. Um, 
what does it look like to have a non-law enforcement approach to engaging those folks to using public health strategies and evidence um, to really um, um, give folks uh, uh, the resources to sort of step outside of that of that world and, and, and not use the guns they may have access to? Yeah, I mean, I think when we think about the access piece, you know, we're in a world where Unfortunately, firearms have already saturated America, right? We have more firearms than, than humans in our, in our nation, um, significantly more. And when you look at the lifespan of a firearm, unfortunately, in a lot of our communities, these firearms have longer lifespans than our youth. Um, and so the saturation is a reality, and it's not something that we can shift in any real meaningful way um, without actually thinking about where does the demand come from, um, why are people looking to arm themselves um, in their own communities when it comes to safety? But more importantly, when they are armed, when someone does have a, a firearm in their home to protect them or their family, you know, how do we prevent that from escalating to what is unfortunately a lot of issues of passion? You know, crimes of passion that lead to lead to homicide or, or lead to suicide or lead to domestic violence and. Um, you know, so to just focus on the firearm is to overlook that this saturation problem is, is not just an inner city problem. It is an American, it is an American obsession that we're fighting against every day that we're, we're in a losing battle against. Um, but I think where we can, where we have a chance is when we actually look at what is leading to these conflicts and how do we get ahead of that? And as opposed to walking up into someone's neighborhood and saying, put the guns down, we ask, Hey, why do you even feel the need to take that type of lethal action? And a lot of the concerns in the communities most impacted are the same in some of the most affluent neighborhood uh, affluent neighborhoods in the suburbs, where people want to they want to feel safe in their home at night. They want to be able to get to the grocery store safely. They want to be able to get their kids to school, you know, to hopefully go off and build their own homes and families and move on. But unfortunately, our government and our society is failing the same neighborhoods that are now suffering from gun violence. In so many ways, we see gun, gun violence as a result of the failure of our societies to support these communities. It's a result of the failure of government to invest in basic life uh, resources and the right to a quality life that so many other people in our country have. And so from our perspective, when we talk about investment, when we talk about the demand and the saturation of firearms, what we're also trying to remind people is that the, what's driving that is the same same thing that drives every American family is to live a safe, healthy, positive life. And if we can't improve the conditions and, and the quality of life for individuals in these neighborhoods, then we'll never be able to address the demand. Thanks, Greg. Where for folks who might be listening at home right now, where where can they go to find out more about about the work that you're doing and get involved to uh, to take action? Yes, um, you can. Go to our website, um, cjactionfund.org. You can follow us on all social media outlets at cjactionfund. Um, and yeah, we would we would love to have you. You can join our email list straight from our website. All of our social media, our DMs are open. You can send us DMs. You can tag us on things. We are very responsive, um, and we are very hungry to get more folks on uh, to join this fight um, to address gun violence in a proactive way that. It prioritizes and uplifts communities versus criminalize and dehumanize them like our country has done for too long. Is there is there anything people should be asking for right now from either their state legislators or their or their federal legislators? 
Yes, we need to be asking every elected official in America, what are you doing to address gun violence in our country? And how are you investing in communities that are suffering from gun violence? You know, we are quick to say that law enforcement has too much dollars or, or dollars aren't going here, or aren't going there. But are we asking the hard question of how much is going into these communities that are suffering before the law enforcement, before police arrive, before the news cameras, before the hashtag, before social media? So a key question is asking, what are they doing around gun violence? How are they investing in these communities? And then most importantly, what are they doing to continue and sustain that efforts that will hopefully uplift the communities out of this crisis of gun violence? Thanks, Craig. Hassan, I'm going to kick the same two questions to you. Where can folks find more about the work that you're doing? And um, well, we'll start with that one. Uh, where can folks find more about the work that you're doing? So we can always, you can always check us out at genprogress.org. Um, that's G-E-N progress.org. And so the second question is like, what, what is, what can, what can people, what can we ask like legis legislators, state legislators to, to do exactly? And I think what we're asking for people to do is like, ask for accountability. Ask your state legislator to be accountable. Ask your legislators to step up. Ultimately, there are a number, a, there is a number of things that your state legislator and the president and, and a numerous, numerous amount of different legislators they, they can do to strengthen the criminal legal system. So what we're asking for folks to do is like demand that your legislators step up. Yep. And you can you can find that action tool that Hassan has been talking about throughout the show by going to genprogress.org and clicking on the take action button. And that'll be one of the options is to take action by emailing. You put in your zip code and it'll populate who your state legislator is. And you can email them uh, with a number of ways that they can take action uh, in the state legislature to support the shrinking of the criminal legal system so that we have fewer people impacted by these vast amount of harms. Um, Charlotte, do you want to uh, do you want to take us on out here? Yeah, let's do it. Um, I really, I just want to thank our guests so much again for joining us today. Um, we are just uh, here at the end of uh, at the end of time, at the end of time for our show. <laughs> um, thank you to today's guests, Hassan Bashir and Greg Jackson, our producer Mark Grimaldi, uh, our communications manager Emily Leach, and also as always to all of our listeners. You should make sure to check us out. And us is uh, Generation Progress on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Gen Progress. And we will talk to you again next time on our Remote Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers, Trucker, Fire Insurance, Exchanges, or Affiliate. Products not available in every state. If your friends haven't told you, McDonald's Spicy Chicken McNuggets are back. The ones made with spicy tempura and aged cayenne. But before you go telling friends, make sure you get them first. Order ahead on the McDonald's app. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. For a limited time at participating McDonald's.